okay, on this on this uh, September 11th, two thousand and eleven. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter twelve. We have come to a place in Scripture where there's a contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And so knowing what awaits us at the finish line, remember in this race that we are running, in order to run it with great endurance, you ought to know what's at the end of the race. And that's the point of really this these last chapters of Hebrews because the Lord wants us to know where we stand in regard to himself whether we are standing in his favorable presence or whether we are standing in a place where we are not looked at God favorably because we have not trusted in Christ as our Lord and Savior so if we have come to a place where we do stand favorably before the Lord, it is only because of Jesus Christ. It is only because He is our mediator. It is only because we are sprinkled with His blood and have been reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. We have come to Mount Sinai, not Mount Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion, excuse me, not Mount Sinai. And that becomes the point of our scripture this morning. So there's a sharp contrast between the Sinai mountain experience and Mount Zion. Because Mount Zion means, uh, it shows us that there's a drastic difference when Christ is in the formula. The drastic difference that Christ makes in our approach to God the Father. The sense that Mount Sinai is to be approached very cautiously. So we're to keep back. But on Mount Zion, a believer finds encouragement to come boldly into God's presence. As it says in Hebrews 4, 16... Therefore, let us draw near with confidence or with boldness. Where? To the throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, you, you see, when you come to Christ, the whole economy of your life changes. The atmosphere is quite different between these two mountains. One has an atmosphere of fear and trembling. The other has an atmosphere of festivity, a festal atmosphere. So this morning I want to continue to discover what awaits us at Mount Zion. Verse number 22 of chapter 12, it says, You have come to Mount Zion. And remember, Mount Zion is where God speaks. It's where He dwells. It's where He fellowships with His people. It's where He is present. That's where, when people thought of Mount Zion, that's what they thought of. That's where I go to meet God. That's where God is. That's where God speaks to me. That's where I listen to Him. That's where I have fellowship with Him. That's where I get my sins forgiven. That's where I learn to bask in His presence and enjoy who He is. That's what Mount Zion brings to our mind and should bring to our mind today uh, in, in this day. And remember, Mount Zion must be appreciated as decisively different because believers are brought to a place where they will enjoy close and delightful fellowship with God and constant access to him. So, in other words, in Christ, in Christ, and in Christ alone, God becomes approachable. Any other way, 
he cannot be approached. That's very narrow today, but it is very true. It's exactly what the Word of God teaches. In fact, so far, we have, we have considered three of the seven things that await believers. And if you look at the Word of God in verse number 22 of chapter 12, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and then it says, to myriads of angels. In other words, it's pointing to a reality ahead of us, of where we're going, and then it tells us there that when we get there, there's going to be a joyful celebration along the good, holy angels in heaven before God in His presence. And then in verse 23, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. In other words, he's listing these things to say, listen, when you get there, this is what's going to be there. This is going to be a grand and joyful occasion that you'll be in Christ in a group enjoying the rights of a firstborn. And remember, I said in modern-day vernacular, we all get the big inheritance. There's no second-born or third-born or fourth-born or any other. There's just first-born, and we're all first-born who know Christ. We get it all. We're joint heirs with Christ. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around that. I don't even know where to start on that one. But see, it's so grand and it's so vast, it should leave us in, in not just a little puddle, but an ocean to swim in about what God has in store for those who know Him as Lord and Savior. That is the most exciting thing. So here is the joy of being a Christian. We who know Christ have come into membership in His city. We're a member of God's city. We're written on the rolls. We're in the book to those who know Christ. So, in the meantime, while we're in this world, while we have to deal with the evil that is before us, while we have to do, deal with remaining sin even in our own flesh, and the world and Satan being against us, we are to consider these things in our mind and think about them every day. Why? So we can run here in this race on earth, knowing we have already come to membership in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's so far where we ended up. Now, if, you are, if we're following a list, and I guess we are, there's a fourth thing that I really want to park on for a while. Because when I looked at this passage, I'm wondering, why is this there? It almost brings that solemn occasion to a screeching halt. And it causes us, it causes us to think more soberly about what and who is there. Look in verse number 23, because you're going to find the fourth thing of the seven that the believer has come to is found in verse 23, right in the middle of the verse. It says, you have come to, and then notice what it says, and to God, the judge of all. You have come to God, the judge of all. Man, that's, that is a sobering statement. So we're coming to this joyful festival, this wonderful place of celebration, and we're reminded there that God is the judge. So even though we have come to celebrate, here we are reminded of a serious certainty that we are coming into the very presence of God Himself, who is the judge of all, the God who will dole out precise and perfectly measured judgment in every circumstance, in every situation, to every person. 
from the beginning of time. And his judgment will be completely accurate and fair. Now, either, either this is a direct quote or it is an allusion to the conversation that Abraham had with three angelic visitors back in the Old Testament, and one of those visitors is named as being the angel of the Lord. He received, of course, a message from those angels that him and his wife Sarah would have a son. From their aged bodies, it would be a miraculous birth. We've been studying that in our home groups And as his visitors were leaving to assess something, in fact, they were leaving to assess if it was time for God to hold judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that passage of Scripture? Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 18 just quickly, and I want you to see where this comes from. Genesis 18, verse number 25. Notice what it says. Abraham now having a conversation with the Lord, pre-incarnate. This is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ in the Old Testament. And this is what he says in verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. That's a good thought. That's a great observation. That's a great question. And look at the last part of the verse. Far be it from you, explanation point, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. Now, if you remember the conversation that went like this, Abraham standing before the Lord in verse 20 to 20, uh, 33, and he says, Lord, Lord, are you going to slay the righteous with the wicked? Lord, Lord, if there's 50 righteous there, will you hold off judgment and not, not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? The Lord says to him, if there's 50, I won't do it. And then Abraham kept coming back to the Lord and says, Lord, if there's 45, if there's 45, I won't do it. Lord, if there's 40, 40, I won't do it. If there's, Lord, 30, I won't do it. Lord, if there's 20, I won't do it. I won't hold judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah if there's 20 righteous there. And Abraham humbly says, Lord, don't be angry at me on this last one. Lord, what about just 10? And the Lord said, if there's 10 there, I will not hold judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, the Lord held judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. It was just a lot in his family, so it was much less than ten. But the point of the passage is that God is the judge, and he will judge accurately as to who occupies a place, who gets life or death, who gets to be in his kingdom, who gets to remain at Mount Sinai, See, it's, it, it's very sobering to, and a, a very sobering reality that God is God and He has all the right to pass judgment when He decides and how He sees fit. See, we're coming to that God. That's not the God portrayed today in the world. God today portrayed in the world is not a judge. The God of the Bible is a judge. And when we get to the eternal kingdom, we're never going to forget that. Could it be, though, when we get to Hebrews, could it be, and this is my question, could it be that this heavenly assembly that's meeting in the city of God, in the heavenly Jerusalem, in some sense is gathered there for some scrutiny by God and some judgment by God. Well, 
so far in Hebrews, that seems to be a possibility. Now, I'm saying it only as a possibility. Because remember back in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That there is nothing that is going to escape his attention. Also, the five warning passages that facilitated a reflection on the ex- an explicit course of action including dire consequences if one chooses incorrectly. That is this, that if you don't decide to follow Christ, you don't decide to worship him, uh, then there are consequences. There are grave consequences. In fact, I would like to go back to some of these and take a short look at them. Not all of them, but just about three of them, maybe two or three of them, and in each warning, in each one of these warnings, it warns us not to ignore, not to neglect God's final revelation in Jesus Christ. Every single warning has something to do with that. Because isn't that the problem of the world? The problem of the world is that they don't acknowledge Christ. They ignore him. They redefine him. They push him aside. They can include him somewhere at the end, something as non-essential. And so the Word of God is saying, don't do that, but be very aware that in each one of these warnings, and all the warnings are a mercy from God to anyone who will listen. Listen, Jesus Christ is the only way. But it doesn't just say, listen, if you don't believe, then that's the end. He goes on to list the characteristics of the people who don't believe and even some of the reasons why they don't. And so each of these warnings have something to do with the final revelation of Jesus Christ. To do so would leave a person either at Mount Zion celebrating or at Mount Sinai terrified there's really no other place to be and of course the admonition to all who are hearing is don't go and stay at Mount Sinai go on to Zion but the only way you can go on to Zion is through Christ so let's go back to one of the first warnings in Hebrews chapter 2 in verse number 1 Take your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 1. I want you to follow this in your Bibles for a second. If you weren't here when I preached on this, just to give you an overview of the warnings that come up throughout Hebrews. And so you yourself can take the warning if you have not yet taken the warning. And not only that, if you have, to take how how serious it is to be a believer. Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 1, For this reason we must pay much, pay much closer attention to what we have what? Heard. Now, in view of the preeminent status of the Son that has been listed in the first chapter, God having spoken in His Son about His saving purpose that came to its full expression in Him, that the Son's message should have paramount claim upon our attention, upon our belief, and upon our obedience. Why? Well, the exhortation is connected with the warning. In verse number 1 it says, so that we do not drift away. There's the warning. We don't drift away. Right? Pay attention. Listen. Why? Why? so you don't drift away. So what is a believer's responsibility? Pay attention to the Word of God, to the details of the Word of God. Why? So you don't drift away. Now that also means that a believer doesn't want to drift away, and they, no matter how 
hard they fight it, they want to heed the message of the Word of God, so they are constantly walking with the Lord, so they do not drift away from it. Drifting away gives the sense of gradual, perhaps even at first, an indiscernible movement away from the faith, from the body of doctrine delivered to the saints, specifically that of Jesus Christ and and his, him providing salvation. So this drifting away would suggest that some kind of problem arose in the person's life, either, either that of being apathetic, they're, they're cold, uh, they, they have uh, no desire anymore to follow Christ, or that of, of regression for something maybe that happened in their life. Maybe they're blaming God for something in their life as a believer. They don't understand why something happened to them, and so they regress away from the truth and they stay away from it for a time and maybe a long time or maybe it's just being naive they never got to the place where they thought seriously about what the word of God said to them to you the word of God's not written to Martians it's written to you right where you're at right where you sit today and so therefore, the warning is don't slip away from the teaching concerning the Messiah's future deliverance and kingdom that are yours who are believers so as not to be influenced, them by, influenced by them anymore. In other words, if you drift away, you can't be influenced by the word of God anymore. And so therefore, you're in trouble. If you drift away from the word of God, what are you going to be influenced by? The world, right? ungodly friends the old passions and desires that you had will rise up again and take control that's what's going to happen and satan will provide all you need to stay away from the word of god well look in verse number two of hebrews chapter two for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression, that's violation of the law, and disobedience, that's the refusal to listen, received a just penalty. So, so here's the argument in Scripture. If God was steadfast on how he held people responsible to the law, mediated by angels, if God was firm, If God was firm, when in the past he spoke through angels and it proved to be unalterable, then, then what do you think God will do? See, if God is, in, in the past era, didn't fudge on his justice and came down hard on people who received his word and then drifted away, mediated by angels, mediated by Moses, mediated by the prophets, then how much will God hold people responsible who shrink back from Christ and willingly and willfully repudiate the only way of salvation? See, how, what will God do? Look at verse number 3 in your Bibles. Here's the warning question. How will we escape if we no neglect so great a salvation? How will you escape? See, see, that's it. How will you get away? Salvation here is the deliverance of people through the mediation of Christ. It is expressed in the highest estimate of importance. If God now, through his Son, provided a greater salvation, and you neglect his final, complete revelation and means of salvation how will you escape well of course they'll not escape they'll not escape from God's justice if they neglect that you see it's just a matter of not paying attention you don't have to be hostile to it doesn't bring in hostility in this particular instance you don't have to be you all you have to be is indifferent to it apathetic to the truth to the message some say well maybe i'm just not feeling it you know you don't feel your need for jesus 
You don't feel your need for God's people or for God's church or for God's word. You don't feel the threat of God's justice in your life. So you're just not interested. That, that's all it takes. I'm doing my own thing. I'm going to live my own life. You know what? It's, it may be good for you, and, and maybe that's your crutch for life. But for me, I'm doing my own thing. I'm enjoying life. It's all it takes. The Lord may let them live life just like that. They hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they just kind of blow it off. So here's where the exhortation and warning should claim your attention. If it's never claimed it before, it should claim it today. Even if you're a believer, it should claim it. If you neglect the only great means of salvation to escape God's wrath, well, you will stand alone to face the justice of God. So we're reminded when we get to the eternal city of God that God is the judge. And he's always been a judge. So it will not matter then of how can you escape, but the cold reality will set in, there is no escape from God's justice. Well, there's a second warning in Hebrews chapter 6. So turn to there. And these concern more of the uh, people who were apostate. They had come under the influence of the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And then under that message, under that message, they, the gifts of God had been given because of the Savior. The blessings that flowed to his children were experienced by them. Yet, he is describing not only a drifting away here in Hebrews chapter 6, but a falling away. Now look at verse number 6 of chapter 6. And then it says in verse number 6, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. See, they, they no longer are willing to hold to the essential aspects of the Christian belief. They drop out of the contest altogether. That's what it's talking about here. And so therefore, they put themselves in a place that they are exempt from all hope of restoration. This means the fallen away cannot mean loss of salvation. They had salvation and they lost it. No, because it is not possible to lose one's salvation if you genuinely have it. And if it were possible, according to the passage of Scripture, the text means that such individuals could never be, uh, become saved then. It would become impossible for them to get saved. So those who have been excited about the things of God and actually, in a quite, quite a short period of time, their zeal zap of, evaporates and they go back to their old way of life, in fact, it could be worse than it was before. See, they were never converted to Christ. In fact, it goes on to say in verse number 6 of Hebrews 6, they actually have abused the Son because of their attitude. In verse 6 it says, Since they have again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. So these people actually identify themselves with Christ's persecutors on that first Good Friday, who deliberately mocked and ridiculed and rejected and humiliated Jesus publicly during his crucifixion and cried out, crucify him, crucified him. And so they became part of the lawless, godless crowd. So in verse number six, what does it say there? It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Impossible in reference to who? Well, probably in both reference to God, but in reference to man too. In this sense, that in this passage of Scripture, it's talking about teaching the Word of God. 
that the word of God being taught, some were, were not able to receive the meat of the word, but only could take the milk of the word. And because of that, they couldn't discern good and evil. So here, in reference to man, is an assertion, assertion that it's impossible by any renewed course of elementary instruction to bring back such apostates to an acknowledgement of the truth. If they have had the full message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what else is there to teach them if they reject that? There's nothing else to teach them. There's no other message. That's why they usually wander off somewhere to another religion, another group of people, because they, they want maybe more. So once that spiritual appetite is lost, how difficult it is for someone to be brought back to repentance. With all this exposure, they had not become different. There was no change of mind that usually comes over a believer. There was no change concerning the truth of Jesus Christ. Instead, they counted Jesus Christ, the Messiah, really as an imposter. The word of God as just a fable. And, you know, finally in the end, it's just a bunch of delusionary stories that Christians believe from the Bible. So we must at least make this observation according to Raymond Brown that we are not dealing with sincere believers who in despair about some spiritual failure in their life that sometimes that happens to us, right? We get in despair. Neither are we dealing with a backslider who has temporarily lost interest in the things of God. That happens too. This person is one who is in fierce opposition to Christ and his gospel. In public rebellion against Christian living and the determination to bring Christ's work to an end. So the, see, the main purpose of this whole letter was to urge these Jewish Christians not to allow themselves to be under the under the pressure of a persecution to abandon the the distinctively Christian aspects of their faith. That is, Christ being the full revelation of all the types and shadows and sacrifices of the Old Testament. When you come to Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, that is it. That's a fulfillment of it all. And so, therefore, He's saying, listen, if you step back from that, if you go back into Judaism, if you go back to a religious system of good works, that's dangerous territory. And then ultimately, the conclusion would be this. Listen, Jesus' work was not enough on the cross. Either I have to add something to it or take something away from it. So were, were such people actually saved? That's an honest question, but I think that we're confronted with some who have made a profession of faith and had formerly had the visible signs and marks of being truly committed to Christ and uh, to the Christian life, but by their refusal to grow, by their refusal to continue in the faith, by their refusal, they drop out of their regular assembly with true believers and they go on and do their own thing. So see, real regeneration real conversion results in a believer possessing a radical transformed nature and a new nature that is predisposed to holiness they they want to be holy it's predisposed as the old nature was predisposed to sin programmed in a sense to sin programmed to satisfy the lust and desires of the flesh so in regeneration, see, God gives the dead sinner a new heart. God puts in that sinner His Holy Spirit and causes that person to walk in His statutes, to love His Word, to fight against the flesh, to expose false teaching, to, to grow and mature in Christ so you become from a, go from a baby to a young man to a spiritual mother and father who learn how to walk by faith, who grow in their knowledge of God, who see the world through God's eyes, through scriptures, who's anticipating entering that eternal kingdom, the heavenly city in New Jerusalem. That's how they live. 
And believe me, you cannot produce that on your own. You cannot produce that in your flesh. The world's not going to teach you that. Satan's not going to allow you to get near that teaching. No, you can't do it at all. See, the renewed and spiritually alive nature drives the saint to be faithful, to be obedient, to be reverent to God. He wants to grow spiritually. He wants to practice righteousness. He wants because he has the seed of God in him. That's why. So here's the warning to all believers, to all who hear this word, especially those who have become dull of hearing and even calloused or even stagnant in their faith. They must leave spiritual infancy and they must grow and move on to spirituality or maturity in Christ Jesus. That is, if the Word of God makes you alive to grow, then if you stay right where you are at the day you believe, then there's no growth, then there was no life. Because life always brings growth, right? If you drop a pumpkin seed in the ground like we did over there in the parking lot, you know what's going to happen? It's going to grow the vine that grows the pumpkins, right? And so therefore, life was there. Didn't know, didn't realize when you threw it there, it was just going to pop up. But that's what happened. That when the seed of God's word is in you, then what happens is that you grow. And you grow your whole life. As long as you're on this earth, you grow in Christ-likeness. It may be up and down a little bit. You may have some times where you're going up and you're leveling off and you're on the mountain but many times you're in the valley but you're still praising the lord you're still growing you don't want to go back to be a baby you want to be mature you want to be mature and then finally in your maturity the heavenly city opens up you begin to see what god has for you there and then you begin to realize you know the christian life is not easy i can't live it alone i need god's help and spirit i need the church i need the assembly of believers which god designs to help us right that's why in chapter 10 of Hebrews, and turn there for a minute, there is another warning, and I'll not give you the details, but go to verse number 25, an exhortation where it says in 1025 of Hebrews, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. See here, letting us in a little bit on the mindset of a believer what is it man i want to be with god's people i can't live the christian life alone i want to learn god's word when we meet together i want to learn for those who have more to teach me and then i can turn around and teach someone else i want to be in that process why because the day to christ coming is drawing near every t- every single day of our lives and therefore i want to be ready i want to be ready for what's ahead of me So in Hebrews, the failure of some to continue attending the gatherings of the community is cast not simply as neglect, but as wrongful abandonment. You see, whatever the reason someone would stop attending does discredit to some extent one's faith, especially if the Word of God teaches that the church lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of god here on this earth and you still see the thinking today william barclay says you still see this thinking today it is still possible for a person to think that he is a christian and yet abandon the habit of worshiping with god's people in god's house on god's day So that's why the Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, brings this up. Brethren, no matter what the condition might be, believers are to stick with Christ's local church because that is where God is working. That that is where God develops you. He doesn't develop you alone somewhere in some desert place where no one's around. No, He brings you to a fellowship of believers. So we're exhorted to take it seriously. So, see, if you desire not to think it important to assemble together with other born-again 
blood-bought believers to hear the word of God and to worship God together, why would you think, why would you think that you would want to go to Mount Zion? Why would you think that you want to go to the place where God dwells, where his people gather for that very reason to worship him, and where there is an an Olympic-sized assembly of the faith of holy angels, and God himself is there? Who is the judge? Why would you think you would want to go there if you don't want to meet with God's people here? See, real Christianity means part of God's program is that we will meet together. And we will be consistent and regular about that no matter what's happening in our life. In fact, the worse it is for you, the more you need the church. Because if it's going good today, it may not be going good tomorrow. Haven't you experienced that yet? That's life. And there are no promises in life that your wealth is going to be there when you think it is. That when the people you depend on are going to be there when you think they are. That your health is going to be there at the end. None of those. No guarantees. God gives us no guarantees there. None. We live in a sinful, cursed world where there's death and dying. And you and I are going to experience that someday. But I'll tell you what. If you are a Christian, nobody can take away your salvation. Nobody can take away what's ahead, what we're hoping for, what God says is ahead, not what I say, what God says is ahead. And so therefore, well, brethren, this fourth, this is actually a fourth warning passage here, is injected into the message that abandoning the gathered assembly of believers is linked to the first indication of potential apostasy. That if someone drops out of meeting with God's people for whatever reason they have and stay away, that's the first indication that they have, may never have been a believer in the first place. Oh, there's hypocrites in the church? Yep. There's sinners in the church. Yeah, the church is not perfect. Yeah, the church don't do this. The church don't have that. Yep, all that is true. But this is true too, that the word of God says that we are not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. If we have to meet under some oak tree and have none of the accoutrements that we have today, then we ought to do that because God says to do it. And that may come to it someday, right? Next time we get flooded out, get flooded out here, the whole building may fall over, and then we'll have to do the next thing, right? That's what we have to do. But we don't stop meeting. Life doesn't stop because things happen. No, you keep going, keep obeying the Lord. So you see, if you do not desire or think it important to assemble together, then you'll not desire or think it important or desire to assemble with a great assembly someday. So here's the main warning concerning God's judgment or uh, on willful disobedience, the danger of those who might spurn the sacrifice of Christ. So then corporate worship is important because to neglect worship gatherings, to withdraw from the Christian assembly leads either to despicable behavior or which means that you pursue a self-centered, sensual life or outright rejection of God. So, who are these people? Look at chapter 10, verse number 26. Well, they despise and they release the truth. It says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So here's, here's uh, someone who is sinning deliberately. Right? They, and after they have received what? The full message, the knowledge of the truth, the saving truth of the gospel. What happens? Verse number 26. There, is no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. See, this does not merely mean that such a sin cannot be forgiven. There is a larger argument going on here that Christ's sacrifice is God's full and final revelation and the provision for sin, and that anyone who knowingly rejects that sacrifice is without hope and without 
mercy. So the willful sin of verse number 26 is really the defiant rejection of the sacrifice of the Son of God. So the great concern here is that the effects of Jesus' sacrifice does not extend to so-called believers who sin persistently or willfully in this manner. If they reject Christ, what else is there to save their souls? That's where they're going with this. So their reputation, their, actually their repudiation of Christ and his sacrifice leaves them nothing. Nothing is left. Except what? What's left? There is one thing left. Verse number 27 to Hebrews 10. If God one spurns God's mercy, all that's left is God's judgment. Verse 27. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. They have become enemies of God. All right. So that's what happens is that there's nothing left but God's judgment. That's all that's left. And when we come to the eternal kingdom, we're reminded of that. We're reminded that God is the judge. Well, just with that in mind, with that in mind, if there is no escape, if you can't escape God's justice, then what is it talking about in Hebrews chapter 12 where it says in verse number 23 that you have come to God the judge of all. So it is at this very juncture that we see the vast difference that Jesus makes because those who come to Christ for salvation do come into the presence of God. That's for sure here. But they come into the presence of God who is judge of all. But not to a fearful expectation of judgment and and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. They come to God, but not to a God who is terrifying. They come to the characteristic of who God is. But in this case, it will be a positive acceptance. It will be a joyful celebration. That to know that God is judge will be a joyful thing. Will be a soothing thing because we know that this God will take care of all injustices. That everything will be righted in His sight. Everything will be done exactly the way it should be done in His sight. For, for those who have been Bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, the throne of judgment has been changed to the throne of mercy. And those who have not come to Christ, after they die, they will be ushered to the throne of judgment. So here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, it helps us to see why there is an emphasis on the festive atmosphere that we're heading for. Something has happened. Something has changed the person's position. Something has changed their standing before God. Well, what are those changes? What makes us different because God is judge than before? What what, what allows us to come into the presence of a God who is judge? Well, there are certain things the Bible does mention. In fact, we're to, we're to come to that. And if you look in your Bibles at verse number 24, or 20, the last part of verse number 23, it says this, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So what happens here? That we are declared righteous and have been made perfect before the Father. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. This, again, here uses a perfect verb And it means, it could also mean to bring to the gold, that God brings us to the goal. And of course, that's a great picture for someone who's running. There's a point in which you reach the goal. There's a point in which you finish. But these people have not only been made righteous, but they have been made perfect. 
And the, the word signifies not lacking in their relationship with God. Nothing can prevent them to have access to his holy presence. Nothing can prevent them from enjoying what is there and what God has given them. That's what we have to look forward to. It also said of the God-man in already in Hebrews that it was Jesus Christ. It, talking about Jesus Christ, having been made perfect, he becomes our perfect high priest and the source of eternal salvation. Also, the Word of God says, a son made perfect forever. So that the, it's pointing to, again, the perfection of Jesus Christ is transferred to us and we are made righteous because of his sacrifice. We are made perfect because of his perfect obedience to the Father. So that's what prevents us from falling under the judgments of God. And then in verse number 24, verse uh, number 6 and 7 in our list, it says, I want to kind of treat these, to treat these two things together where it says in verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So there is a perfection that takes place because of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the great high priest, has acted as the mediator of the new covenant. He's the go-between. He brings us a sin offering and he brings himself as the offering. So in the word of God, there was no better covenant that can be made than by the mediator. Moses could not make a better covenant. In fact, it's a better sacrifice. And it's also a better offer. That the sprinkling of the blood of Christ was mentioned in the Old Testament when the covenant was ratified the blood was sprinkled on the people and on the word of God. Here it's sprinkled over us, and so therefore the blood becomes more clear than any other message that could ever be delivered, even more clear than what was spoken through the prophets in Hebrews chapter 1, more clear than what was spoken by angels, more clear than what was spoken by the law, and more powerful because it has victory over sin provides victory over sin and death and Satan and it offers eternal salvation more effective because the son's one time forever sacrifice brings one to a finished course in this life and into eternal salvation to be with God forever but one of the main points in this text is found in verse number 24 and there's one thing I want you to see where it says to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now that's a very significant statement in this portion of the word of God. And why is that? Because when Abel was slain, well, Jesus' blood speaks louder and longer and more significantly than Abel's blood. And why is that? Because Abel's blood cries for vengeance. While Jesus' blood cries for reconciliation. That's the difference. In fact, this is of course a passage from Genesis where when Abel was slain by Cain, his blood upon the ground, the Bible says, cried out but what did it cry out for it cried out Abel's blood cried out for vengeance against Cain and that's why when God came to speak to Cain it's recorded this way in the word of God and God says listen because you have done this thing cursed is the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield strength to you. It will be, you will become a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain responded to God in this way. And he said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. That's significant. Because that's exactly where we stand before God at Mount Sinai. 
that the punishment that God has for people is too great to bear. You cannot bear it. This, is a, this statement is crying out for Abel's blood to have vengeance on the one who killed him, his own brother. And yet, Jesus comes. He provides a sacrifice for sin on the cross. And he is slain there for sinners. And what does he provide there on the cross? He provides a new way of reconciling to God. That's what he provides. Not vengeance, not punishment, where we end up being enemies of God, but reconciliation and grace, and actually the very word reconciliation found in 2 Corinthians 5.18, where it says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, that God provides Christ's death to transfer sinners from enemies to friends. The very word means to put someone into friendship with. That means simply this, that when you come to Christ, that God through Christ puts you into friendship with God. You're no longer an enemy of God. And Paul communicated that to the the church at Rome where he says, and if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son and much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. He wanted to make it clear, listen, when you come to Christ, you no longer are enemies of God, you're friends of God. And a sinner cannot reconcile himself or herself to God. That's God's place. It is when the sinner repents and turns to Christ in faith. Only then can God the Father change his attitude toward the sinner from one of wrath to one of peace. From one of a judge who condemns one and holds vengeance against one for the sin and offense against him to one who he accepts as a friend because all the payment has been made in their behalf. That's why, what does the Lord leave us to do? What does he leave, leave us to do? That we have the ministry of what? Of reconciliation. So what are we going to do? We, we're to go preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? So the people who don't think they're enemies of God can see they are enemies of God under God's wrath as a judge, and therefore the only way they can be friends of God and be at peace with God is through Jesus Christ and what? His shed blood. So therefore, it's no longer the vengeance of God, but the reconciliation of God in which we preach today. So we can't just say God's a judge without saying that Christ provides reconciliation, right? And like Spurgeon used to say, he used to say something like this. You can't reconcile friends no need to you only need to reconcile enemies right so see if you're a friend of God it's only because of Jesus Christ that the work of Christ is the only necessary means provided by God himself for eternal salvation for all people of all times no matter what religious influenced them in their day so what is the conclusion me taking a very long way to get here well look at your bibles in verse 25 so here's here's the question if people reject the message What do you think God the judge will do? Well, look at verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Who was that? Moses. Right? If God, remember, I went back there and I showed you, if they refused Moses, what God didn't allow him to escape, right? Well, look what it says there. If they 
did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. See, has God changed? In the middle of this great message on, wow, this is what's before you, he again, those who are living and listening, he says, listen, don't refuse him. Don't refuse the final revelation. Don't refuse Jesus Christ. Ignore him. Dismiss him. Why? Because if you do, if you do, then you'll have to deal with the judge who warns from heaven. And you don't want to be there. And the only one who could rescue you from there is Christ himself. So our passage is speaking of the absolute disastrous eventuality of cutting oneself off from the grace of God. That this person, instead of being carried forward by the grace of God, turns away from it and is being left behind and is thus lost forever So not believing Moses, God's faithful apostle and mediator, is one thing. But not believing the greater than Moses, the faithful apostle and high priest, Jesus Christ, is ruinous. There is no other message to preach if someone rejects Christ. That's it. So once men... We're under the terror of the law. And the relationship between them and God was one of an unbridgeable distance and a shuddering fear. That's Mount Sinai. That's where the law brings you. But God says, don't remain there. Go on and look where the law was pointing to, right? The law brought you to Christ. The the law brought you to a place which the law could never do, save you, make you right with God eternally. The law brought you there, and then you have the message of Jesus Christ, and Jesus now takes care of all the rest. So after Jesus came and lived and died and rose, the God who was a far distance was brought near and the way open to the presence of God, and he remains today the final revelation to all humanity, and that he remains today the only way open to God. There is no other way to get to God the Father except through Jesus Christ the Son. That is the message. It is narrow. It is not popular. It goes goes against all the mainstream thinking of our day, but it is true more true than anything else and we cannot change that message so today are you a believer or are you not it's clear are you a believer and are you not and if you are are you serious about living your christian life or are you just playing games you have to be sober-minded as well as joyful there's got to be this seriousness about Christianity that comes upon you to grow in Christ and to mature in Christ and to live for Christ and to love Christ because that's where you're heading. So when you get lost in the grandeur of so great a salvation, we will indeed conclude that it is the greatest thing that could have ever happened to me to hear the gospel and be saved. It is the most supreme gift that could be received on this good earth, God's good earth. And you'll not want to let go once you know that. You'll not want to let go of the grandest gift that could ever be bestowed by God himself to people like us who deserve none of it. See, when we see it like that, then we'll realize that our salvation is magnificent. It is the greatest thing God could ever give us. And we don't want to let it go.
we may lose everything this world thinks we should have and hold to Christ and we lost nothing. You realize that? Because we already have everything in Christ. We're just waiting to get it. We already have it by faith, but we're waiting to see it with our eyes, right? We're waiting to be there, and that's the promise of God, and he cannot lie. And so what he says in the word of God is true, and so I anticipate it, and I live my life according to it. That's what we ought to do as believers. So on this 9-11 day, in which we all remember the days that the planes hit the Twin Towers, and we realized for the first time we were weak and we are vulnerable, and they got past our defenses. And many people died that day. I don't think we should ever forget that. But at the same time, it should more infuse our desire to want to tell people of how to be reconciled to God. Right? Because it could happen again. It could happen to us. It doesn't have to happen that way. There's a million, trillion ways that God can just take us. It's going to happen. Of course, we all pray it would be later than sooner but it's going to happen, right? But if you know Christ, no worries because he has defeated death. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. I praise you, Lord, that the scriptures tell us that things that no other book can tell us because their source is heaven we know Lord that it comes from you and you tell us Lord the way it is you tell us what it's going to be like you tell us in the word of God what to expect even how to live here and so Lord as we come anticipating that time Lord make us sober minded make us serious believers if people don't know you bring them to faith lord help them to see that they could never escape your justice there is no escape only through christ can we escape the wrath of god i pray that would be clear today and so lord keep us by your spirit keep us assembling together learning your word pouring our lives into each other meeting needs serving you praying before you living our lives, life in a way that we know pleases you, I pray that you would enable us to do that so your work continues, so we can pass on to, ne to the next generation what you have taught us. Enable us to do that, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would always be desiring to meet together for worship because it's the culmination of our week. It's a time that we can come and lift up your great name. And I pray that we do that right now as we stand together and close in a song. Let's, pray, let's stand together.